You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hundreds of years ago, long before Google Maps, it was common to see maps adorned with fantastic creatures and mythical monsters. But over time, that practice died out. If you're like me, you probably thought those creatures were doodles to fill in the vast emptiness of the seas. Well, I've been disabused of that notion by the researcher Chet Van Duzer, and today we'll be talking about sea monsters on medieval maps on Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today we're going to learn about the medieval practice of adorning maps with monsters. But first, I want to tell you about an upcoming event in Atlanta that might be of interest to you. For the fifth year in a row, the Medcalf Memorial Star Party is being held the Thursday night before DragonCon. This is a fundraiser to fight cancer and will feature speakers Phil Plate, Pamela Gay, and Nicole Giliucci. There will be music, there will be food. And barring unforeseen circumstances, there will be me. I'm not on the official venue, but I'm very accessible if you want to say howdy. Go to atlantastarparty.com to learn more and sign up. It's a good cause, and every year has been a treat. Sometimes you even get to see stars. Now let's get to some monster talk. So today we're talking with Chet Van Duzer, a writer and researcher and currently an invited research scholar at the John Carter Brown Library in Rhode Island. Chet has published extensively on medieval maps and is the author of what's probably the definitive book on medieval map monsters, which is titled Sea Monsters on Medieval and Renaissance Maps. So, Chet, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Blake. I recently had the opportunity to hear Chet lecture at the Georgia Aquarium, and it was great, and I, he's graciously agreed to do our show here. So tell us about your book, because I think that's probably uh, how I got interested in this topic. I mean, that's not true, by the way. I actually have always been interested in map monsters. I didn't realize how ignorant I was, though. So let's talk about your book. Well, it's a, a fun topic, um, and the book is the first in-depth discussion of sea monsters on maps, and it covers the period from the 10th century, which is the date of the earliest surviving maps that have sea monsters, uh, to the beginning of the 17th century when sea monsters on maps started to, de to decline, and it's heavily illustrated in color with you know good details of the monsters on the map so you can get uh, up close and personal with them. Uh, and uh, when I first got interested in the subject, I was surprised to learn that there was no good study of sea monsters on maps as they're one of the most visually engaging and characteristic elements of medieval maps. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, the monsters on maps can also reveal a lot about the sources that the cartographers were using and that's something I devote a lot of space to in the book. So I felt very lucky that uh, no one had treated this topic before in, in much detail. 
Yeah, I have to say, it, it was startling to me how much information you were able to deliver on this topic. Uh, I think, uh, and I don't know if this is how most people view this, but I, I think prior to actually attending your lecture, I had always assumed that the monsters on maps were not not doodles per se, but just uh, the works of imagination of the cartographer. Like they had all this empty space out in the water and they would just fill it with pictures. But that's not at all what this is about. Yeah. And, and in fact, that was one of the most interesting res- results of my study. Uh, because as you say, the monsters you, that you see on these maps do look like pure whimsy. They look like something that the cartographer just pulled out of the air. Um. But what I found is that in many cases, the cartographers took their sea monsters from the most authoritative works that were available to them, such as illustrated medieval encyclopedias. And many of the creatures in these works are not real. Many of the creatures in these encyclopedias are not real. But the point is that the cartographers were seeking out and using the best sources available to them, and they were portraying creatures that they thought were real, that they thought they had good authority for. So they weren't, in general, they weren't just making them up. There are exceptions to that, but in general, the, they were doing their best to portray creatures that they thought were real. Would you say um, most of the creatures on these maps are creatures of legend? Because the creatures in these illustrated encyclopedias, for example, aren't real, the question arises as to how they came to be portrayed in these encyclopedias. And many of the specific creatures in these sources are, are based on legend. But it's a difficult line to draw and, and to know what the sources of these creatures were. Unfortunately, we don't have much information on that subject. Right. But you, in your talk, you did talk about extant myth that, that there were analogies between land creatures and sea creatures. Can you explore that just a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was a, a theory that goes back to uh, classical antiquity, and it's repeated by medieval authors. And in fact, I, I think I recall seeing it in a book from the 17th century. The theory states that for every land creature, there is a corresponding sea creature. Um, and so you can see Roman mosaics, for example, that have uh, a leopard with a fishy tail or a goat with a fishy tail. So this theory was a very prolific generator of sea monsters. Um, and that type of sea monster is something that you see that that category of sea monster is, is something that you see on a lot of medieval and Renaissance maps. Yeah. I, I, the sea hair, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> obviously this is a, an audio presentation, but if you get the book and you should, it does have this astonishing array of, of it's a, well, it's just amazing the things that people uh, hypothesize might be out in the ocean. Yeah. Um, and it seemed ridiculous to me uh, because uh, there's just so many strange creatures in the sea compared to what's on land. But then the more I thought about it, I realized I am slowly turning into a giant jellyfish. So maybe there's something to it. <laughs> I probably just need to hit the gym. Uh, <laughs> so do you think like uh, the people who created the maps really expected to see these animals out in the ocean? Well, yes. Uh, they, f- they found these creatures in books. And as far as they knew, these you know, the, the books were by respected authors like Thomas of Contempré, who made this encyclopedia in the Middle Ages, and some of the manuscripts of the work are illustrated. And it seems likely that, at least in some cases, the, the creatures on maps come from uh, Thomas of Contempré's encyclopedia. So uh, I'm not sure that people looking at the maps were thinking about it in those terms, like if they were thinking about making a voyage – but when they saw those creatures on maps, they, I think they believed that, and particularly if they were educated and, and were familiar with these encyclopedias, they would recognize some of these creatures as, uh, as creatures whose existence was attested to in these authoritative works. So, yes, I think people looking at the maps w- would think that if they sailed there, they would see these creatures. I've done a lot of research on various historical claims and monsters, 
but I've never tried to do that from pictures, you know. So usually with a um, a literary source or a, a written story, I can use all sorts of indexes to look things up. How do you do this kind of research? How do you track back the monsters um, on the map to their literary sources? Or iconographic sources. Or iconographic sources, yeah. How, how, yeah. I mean, what's the literal library work like? What's the research like? Well, it is challenging. Uh, it's a good question. Um, so, for example, uh, Johann Schoener, a German mathematician and geographer and astrologer, uh, created a terrestrial globe in 1515. And it has depictions of a number of sea monsters on it. And I was very interested to find find out where those monsters came from. And w- what I started doing was looking at illustrated books that were published, illustrated books that had sections about animals that were published before the globe was made. I wish I could say that I had some very clever technique uh, for finding the source, but in the end it was just a lot of hours in the library looking at every illustrated book I could get my hands on. And uh, I uh, eventually found an illustrated encyclopedia, which was first published in 1491 in Germany called the Hortus Sanitatis or Garden of Health. And it has a section on sea creatures. Once I saw it, I knew immediately that those sea creatures were taken from that book. They were copied from that book. And this was confirmed when I saw the same cartographer, uh, Johann Schoner, his manuscript globe from 1520, which has very similar uh, images of sea monsters on it, but it also has texts with them. And I guess there weren't room, there wasn't room for texts on the 1515 globe, but on the 1520 globe, uh, it's much larger. There's room for texts, and those texts come from that encyclopedia. So that really. Uh, confirmed in the clearest possible way that that encyclopedia was the source. Um, and then in Gerard Mercator's uh, famous world map of 1569, we've, most of us have heard of the Mercator projection, and it's, we, we've heard of that because of this map. Um, it has about a dozen sea monsters on it. And again, just by doing a lot of library research, I found that most of those sea monsters were taken from a, a book about sea creatures published by Pierre Ballon uh, about a dozen years before Mercator made his map. Are the are the monsters at the top of the map larger than the monsters in the middle? <laughs> 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 oh, those Mercator jokes. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> well, actually, you know, what's interesting about the sea monsters on that map is if you compare them with the ones in the book – they're all reversed left to right. And that was because uh, when, when you engrave, if you're engraving words on a printing plate, for example, you have to engrave them backwards so that when you print them, they come out correct. Uh, but what happened in this case is that the engraver looked at these sea monsters and thought, well, it doesn't matter if, I, if they're reversed left to right. And it's easier for me if I just copy them directly. So, yeah, and, and they're great copies. That's the other thing that really impressed me. I mean, yeah, yeah, these guys didn't. Uh, it's not original material, but they did a fantastic job of copying. It's great. Yes. Yeah, and it's, it's 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 actually interesting that they they did such a careful job. It shows that they really did care about getting the details right, uh, even when they were copying something like a, a a seahorse. That you know, for us, it's obvious that it doesn't exist. Yeah, so so when you're doing the actual research, so so it sounds like you still deal with some of the same issues. So you have a suspicion that this is the source for this uh, this this written thing is the source for the creature in this map, and then you have to see does it match up in description and is it chronologically possible that this is the source? Would the book have been available in the area at the time? I assume would also be a question. Um, that that is also a question, and then some some of the works in question. Um, were not printed. Uh, so they were manuscript books that were copied by hand and, and in some cases illustrated by hand. And that gets even more difficult to try and determine, uh, you know, were manuscripts of that work available in that area? Were they available in that area at that time? And those questions are often very, very difficult to answer. Where does this map go? Where is it published? 
And and what's it like in the workshop of someone putting this together? What what kind of sources are they bringing together? What kind of tools are they using? Uh, as far as the audiences of the map, uh, that's a, a good question. And there's there's a difference between uh, in, that, in that regard between a manuscript map and a printed map. So a manuscript map would typically is painted by hand. The wording is done by hand, and it would typically be done on parchment. And uh, because it was all by hand, because it was on parchment, it was a very labor-intensive process. And particularly if the map was elaborately decorated uh, with, for instance, descriptive texts or images of cities or images of sea monsters, it would be quite expensive. And so the, the audience in that case uh, would be a, a very elite audience uh, and a rich audience, frankly. Uh, the advent of printing sort of democratized maps to a large extent. They became – they didn't become something that everyone can afford certainly, but they, they opened up cartography to a much wider audience. And as far as what was going on in the workshop, that's a, a question I, I like to think about a lot. I like it when I can analyze a map and, and try and understand what was happening in the workshop. And so one example – uh, that's particularly interesting in that regard is a map uh, by uh, Martin Waldseemuller, who was working in a, a little town called Saint-Dié, which is now in uh, eastern France. And I'm thinking specifically of his world map of 1516 called the Carta Marina, which is on permanent display at the Library of Congress. And that map... Uh, was the result of a very intense uh, research by the cartographer. Uh, what he did is he copied the the outlines of the land, so world maps, so we copied the outlines of basically all the lands from one map, but that map had very little in the way of interior detail. It didn't have much in the way of rivers or mountains or descriptive texts about the people who live in Region X and so on. And so what he did is he, once he'd drawn those outlines, he did research in travel narratives, uh, books of cosmography and so forth, and assembled this tremendous amount of information, which he then added to the map. And I'm not sure that that process is entirely typical, but it is, it does show that, that cartographers were doing research, um, and it, with the case of sea monsters, uh, we know that the cartographers were doing research into which what sea monsters should I portray on my map? Well, they, they went looking in recent books about animals and sea creatures to try and find the most authoritative information, which is why Gerard Mercator was using that book uh, published 12 years before. So – uh, a cartographic workshop in the, the Middle Ages and Renaissance was active uh, in terms of research. Certainly, that is really neat. I, I just, I, I think it's it's really simple now to take a look and go, oh, that's interesting. Isn't that pretty? Those are strange looking creatures, but not really uh, give a lot of deep thought into how much work each one of these maps represents. Yeah, that's um, right. But it, it, it's actually uh, – it's not like they can just go look at a map and then make a copy of it. I mean they, they – it's much more than that it seems to me, especially – we're just talking about the monster part. But I mean knowing the names of the cities, knowing what the region's uh, uh, I guess um, topography was supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. Now, these aren't entirely – I mean again, they're not really designed to take you specifically on a ship and take, take you from one place to the other. But so – so how are they different from uh, the navigational maps of the time? It's important to talk about the, the different purposes of maps. And, and there's two large categories of medieval maps. One is called mapai mundi. The singular is mapa mundi, the plural mapai mundi, which just means world map, basically. And they were not intended to be tools for travel at all. Uh, instead... They were intended for study or display. And the vast majority of them are small and schematic and really only indicate the relative positions of Europe, Africa, and Asia. 
There are larger and more elaborate examples that show mountain ranges and rivers, uh, but even those were intended for study rather than to be taken on a trip. So uh, the, the whole genre of Mapamundi is not oriented towards travel at all. It's oriented towards study and display. And, and the center of the world and the orientation of the directions is different. Yes. So, so usually, not always, but usually, uh, well, let's, let's just say a lot of these maps are centered on Jerusalem. And most of them are oriented with east at the top. So east was the holy direction, uh, the direction where the sun rises, where paradise was thought to be located. Um, so yes, they're, they're distinctive in that way too. The other main category of uh, medieval maps are nautical charts, which are sometimes called portalon charts. Um, and they're very different. They were designed as practical tools for navigation to guide sea captains. Um, the emphasis is on coastal features, and they have a, a network of what are called rum lines, these sets of lines that, that radiate out from points on the chart, and those points form a circle. And the, the exact function of rum lines is not entirely clear, uh, but they certainly had something to do with finding uh, – with a ship finding its way from one point to another. Are you saying rum or run? Uh, rum, R-H-U-M-B. Oh, oh. <laughs> I thought, well, if they go circular and there's a bunch of sailors. I, I was in the Navy. I know what that means. Yes. <laughs> I got it. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> it's all right. Um, and these were, in their essence, they were practical tools uh, for navigation. Um, the ones that have survived down to, uh, to modern times um, were not taken to sea. We don't have a single medieval nautical chart that has come down to us that was one that was taken to sea, at least not that we can tell. And the reason for that is uh, twofold. First, the ones that were taken to sea saw hard usage. Uh, they were exposed to very humid sea air all the time. Uh, they were used on the captain's ship, uh, table on the ship. And uh, you know, it's, it's easy to imagine that after time they were just worn out from service and were disposed of. The ones that have come down to us are more elaborately decorated examples. So the, the ones that were used on ship would have been very uh, workmanlike. They would have shown the coastlines accurately. They have the coastal place names uh, written along the coast, and they have this network of rum lines. But they would have very little in the way of interior detail, and they would have very little in the way of decoration. But there were other types of nautical charts uh, more elaborately decorated examples that would have these painted images of cities. They would have descriptive texts about uh, the, the people who lived in a certain region. Uh, they would have images of kings, and they could have images of sea monsters as well. And these were very expensive indeed. Uh, they were things that would have been owned by uh, a prince, for example, or a king, and more, they were more like a Mapamundi in that they were intended for display. It was um, more along the lines of conspicuous consumption uh, and also study. So those are the two main uh, types of medieval maps, Mapamundi and nautical charts. And their, their intended functions are very different. Do you study the history of cartography itself? I do, yeah. It seems like it's a mixture of art and math and geometry, which is part of math, I guess. It's a lot of things. But it, I know it got really good later. I mean, I've looked at the Lewis and Clark maps, which astonished me. And so I guess there had to be some technology improvements to get really, really accurate maps. But that was also uh, different because that was kind of a land map. And you could stand there and use uh, sighting tools. Mm -hmm. So how did that work uh, I guess it's just a different thing, but I, I was wondering, like, how how did that advance through the medieval ages? Because um, by the time you get to the Renaissance, the maps start to look a lot more familiar to me. Yes. Uh, so what what caused those improvements? I guess is well, my long, long, long question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the nautical charts were were practical tools for navigation in their in their that was their basis. There are more elaborately decorated examples, but the, the, even the elaborately decorated ones have that skeleton of functionality. 
Uh, and those were the the data came from sailors and sea captains. And we don't know, we don't have any documentation about that that transfer of information from sea captains to cartographers, whether whether the cartographers made a habit of interviewing sea captains when they came into port, whether the sea captains were making sketch maps as they sailed and then later gave those to cartographers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Unfortunately, we, we really don't have much information about that process. But one uh, important advance in cartography was the rediscovery of Ptolemy's geography. And Ptolemy was a Greek uh, living in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, in the second century AD. And he wrote this book called The Geography, sometimes titled Cosmography. And the book is a set of instructions on how to make maps, together with an enormously long list of 8,000 place names with their latitudes and longitudes. And when Ptolemy's Ptolemy's geography uh, was just barely, there's a few citations of it in medieval uh, records, but very, very little. It basically was was largely unknown in the Middle Ages um, and then was rediscovered in Byzantium in about 1300 and then made its way to Italy and from Italy spread across Europe. And one thing that was very exciting about Ptolemy's geography in the early Renaissance was that it portrayed space by latitude and longitude. And that's the way modern maps are made. And to us, it seems very obvious, but that systematic way for representing space and and systematic and mathematical way for representing space was very exciting in the early Renaissance. And that was certainly an influence that helped cartography uh, move forward uh, tremendously. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It, it always amazes me how that when when someone clever makes an innovation that's really really good, it always seems obvious in retrospect. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> and it, it just picks up. And well, how to come? Why didn't they know that? You know, um, that's right. So let's get back to monsters a little bit. That's ostensibly what this show is about. Sure. <laughs> so we've got uh, sea monsters. Yes. And that includes sea serpents and sirens and whales and great fish, leviathan. Uh-huh. Uh, on the sirens, I noticed that, uh, that there's sometimes what looks to me like a sea uh, – a, a mermaid, excuse me, and sometimes it's a siren. Are those labeled somewhere? I saw in your lecture I was, I was trying to figure out how you're discerning what the difference is. Well, yeah, yeah that's a tough question. Uh, I, I, I don't know of a good way to, to really distinguish between what's a siren and what's a mermaid uh, unless – if if the creature is, for example, singing, I mean, that plays in with the classic sure. mythology of the siren. Boom, it's a siren, right, yeah. 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 But, but in terms of distinguishing from their appearance, um, 
I, I don't have a good way to do that. I mean, you have ones with one tail and ones with two tails. Yes. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that. I didn't know what that was supposed to represent. Um, um, if that was supposed to show that she had uh, fish legs, you know, or, or if it was um, supposed to be motion. I was really unclear on that. Yeah. Yeah. I, unfortunately, despite all my studies, I haven't become any more clear on that. Uh, the, the one map I showed in my talk had sirens, three different types of sirens. Uh, one half woman, half fish. One half uh, woman, half horse. And I'm trying to remember what the other one. Oh, half woman, half bird. So th- there certainly are different types, but it's it's a thorny subject trying to distinguish between sirens and mermaids. Yeah, I would assume the half woman, half bird is a harpy. Yes. Even then, it, so Homer, the sirens in Homer were half woman, half bird. You know, it doesn't really make any difference if I speculate, but I, I'm, I'm, it probably isn't motion. I kept thinking about it. It probably is supposed to be that. They're half human, so they have two legs. But they, since they're half fish, they have fish legs. So they're—I don't know. It's—it's it's a really interesting question. It would be cool if you could find a um, a key to uh, solve that mystery. It would indeed, and I'll <laughs> keep my eyes peeled. <laughs> so, um, what about on land? Um, did you do you see a lot of land monsters? I, I was thinking specifically of the the sort of cynocephalic creatures we've talked about on the show before, uh, which are dog-headed creatures like um, uh, St. Christopher. And then there's this uh, other one. I can't think of its name, but it's a monster who uh, is headless but has a face on its chest and, and belly. Yeah, the, the blummy eye. Oh, okay. Thank you. Sure. That's supposed uh, to be my job, and I failed. So. <laughs> <laughs> um Yes, those those certainly do appear on maps. I mean, they weren't uh, they weren't the focus of this book, but inevitably, when I was looking for sea monsters, I, I came across land monsters as well. And, and there are many on different medieval maps. So for the, there's uh, one of the well, the largest surviving medieval map of Mundi is called the Hereford map, and it's on permanent display in the Hereford Cathedral in in England. And it has a very, very rich array of land monsters, and particularly along the southern edge of Africa, it has a strip of many different humanoid uh, monsters, such as the Blemii. Um, so they certainly are found on maps. And again, they, they it's a sort of traditional cast of characters, uh, the land monsters, and particularly these humanoid the so-called Plinian races or monstrous races. Um, and it's, it's a tr- traditional cast of characters and they come from books just like the sea monsters. I, uh, do you anticipate a follow-up volume, Land Monsters on Medieval and Renaissance Maps? It's tempting. I mean, the, the sea monsters were particularly appealing just because almost nothing had been written about them. So it was a wide open field. There have been articles and books that touch uh, that discuss the the land monsters on maps, um, uh, but it still is tempting. It's, it still is tempting to uh, c- consider not all, but do a, a very broad uh, address broadly uh, a, 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 a survey. <laughs> a survey, yes, exactly. <laughs> the. Uh, I, it would be nice uh, because this your book here on sea monsters really brings together a a, a lot of amazing imagery, uh, a lot of which I hadn't seen before. Take a look at this and consider buying a copy. It'll make you look smart. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the other thing about it is it's a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, it really is. There's a, there's a scholarly aspect to it. It, it was very. For me, I really enjoyed um, – so when, you, when, you, when I was able to figure out what the source of the sea monsters on a particular map was, I, I gained some insight into you know, what was on the cartographer's bookshelf, uh, which I always enjoy. But, and so there's that scholarly aspect to it. But at the same time, they're just a lot of fun. Uh, and you know, when I give talks about sea monsters, everyone goes away with a smile. Um, it's it's just a really engaging topic. It is, and um, I found one uh, particular story that you told uh, about a recurring image that was about the image of a whale or a giant fish with a, f- a fire on its back. Would, would you talk about how that story develops? 
Yes. Um, well, we, we, it first appears in a, a book called the Physiologus, uh, which goes back to uh, classical antiquity. And we, we don't know how it ended up in that book. And this book is a collection of, of tales, uh, m- mostly about animals, but there are some about uh, stones and, and plants that have powers as well. Um, but the one about the whale, and all, all of these stories have a, a moral to them, a moral lesson. And the one about the whale says that uh, that the whale is, is so large that it's often mistaken for an island. And so sailors are sailing along in their ship and they see what they think is an island. And so they, they stop on it and they, they fix a line to it. And then they light a fire to cook food. And the whale is so enormous that, you know, maybe it didn't feel these people uh, standing on his back, but it, it does feel the heat of the fire. And when it feels the heat of the fire, it dives down into the ocean, goes way down deep, carrying with it the sailors, the ship, and everything. And the moral lesson of that story, according to Physiologus, is that if you put your faith in the devil, you'll be carried to hell. And that story was uh, very influential. It was very often repeated in later books about animals, particularly medieval bestiaries, medieval books of animals. And the story, one iteration of the story, uh, the story found its way into the life of St. Brendan, uh, who was an Irish saint, and I believe it was the 7th century, who was said to have made uh, a long voyage on the Atlantic, and he found many miraculous, or, or at least wondrous islands. And one of those islands was a, a actually a whale, and so that the story made its way into St. Brendan's, the story of his uh, travels, and from that source, it made its way onto some maps. So uh, I think the, f- the earliest map that has an image of St. Brendan and the whale on it is the Piri Reis map of 1513, and Piri Reis was a Turkish admiral. And he says he made his map based on his study of 20 other maps, including both European maps and uh, Islamic maps. And on that map, there's an image of two fellows on the back of this enormous fish. And um, they've lit a fire. And uh, we know what's going to happen next. (laughs) The the text there uh, explains the story. Uh, but it's just before that that moment when the the whale dies under the surface. It's the perfect point because if you did it any later, there would be you know just ripples, and if you did it any sooner, you wouldn't know what was happening, right? So exactly, yeah, <laughs> it's the, the crucial moment. But it gets more complicated as the as the imagery as the story like as maps progress, that that imagery gets more complex. Well, yes, and and there's more. Uh, I guess you could say attention to detail because in the. There was, so there's a physiologist version of the story where they, they stop on the, the whale island uh, and, and light a fire to cook food. Uh, but I think in the, in the Brendan version, uh, they're lighting the fire as a preparation towards uh, performing mass on the back of the uh, whale. And there, there's one map from 1621 that, that shows that scene of this elaborate – ceremony the mass being performed on <laughs> that was the my back favorite. of this whale that was my favorite that was that was terrific <laughs> the the table with the candles and everything yeah. that that's uh, <laughs> it was really quite elaborate <laughs> yeah good thing they they had all that stuff well there. it's like it's like i we've just been waiting to find an island because <laughs> i've got all this stuff ready to go <laughs> It, it is quite funny to me. It, so I assume it's okay to reproduce that image in our show notes. <laughs> the copyright may have expired, right? So <laughs> yeah, it's out of copyright. That's right. So that 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 was great. And the reason I thought that was particularly um, uh, poignant is because a recurring theme on this show is that there will be some legend that we encounter in monster lore, which 
gets elaborated on without anyone going back to the source material to find out whether it was factual or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's really a mechanism that extends way beyond uh, cryptozoology and, and just into folklore in general. Mm-hmm. So we always talk about how people are a, a storytelling creature and those stories are not static. Right. But they do carry themes and carry uh, elements forward. So Absolutely. Yeah. It was really uh, relevant to this show. So why did the monsters die out on these maps as, um, I guess, as Western culture approached modernity? Yes, well, uh, on old maps, uh, it's common to see representations of both sea monsters and ships. And if you think about it, there's actually a tension between these two types of images. Sea monsters indicate the dangers of the ocean, uh, while images of ships proclaim the ability of humans to navigate those waters. So a lot of old maps have both images of sea monsters and ships, and those, those two Images uh, indicate opposite uh, thoughts about the ocean, really. Um, But in the middle of the 16th century, uh, a number of cartographers started portraying sea monsters that were, in fact, simply imagined and invented by the cartographer. Uh, they they assembled sea monsters. For instance, there's one with uh, the head of an elephant and the body of a bird and these big spikes sticking out of its back. And there's no scientific source that talks about a creature of that type. Uh, and at this point, sea monsters began to take on a purely decorative function um, rather than showing the creatures that were believed to inhabit the ocean. Um and as as sea creatures as the sea creatures on maps took on that purely decorative function, uh, I, I think that was a step towards the the dying out of sea monsters on maps. At the same time, as navigational technology improved and people became more confident about navigating the ocean, images of ships became more common on maps, particularly in the 17th century, and uh, th- again, those those ships uh, are, are sort of the opposite, in a way, of images of sea monsters. So the, the increase of ships was going hand-in-hand hand with the decrease of sea monsters on maps. And as nautical charts became more and more accurate and more scientific in nature, the perceived desirability of decoration decreased. And first sea monsters and then also images of ships became less and less common on maps. And I noticed that um, the the ships themselves also became more detailed. That's certainly true, yeah. In the drawings that you showed. Yeah. But one thing that really stuck out was the earlier maps showed whales as a kind of uh, monstrous creature, an unknown creature. And then as um, time passed and the technology being used to build these maps changed – the whales change to be more realistic. Can you talk a little bit about that arc of the whale as monster to the whale as, uh, I don't know, resource? Yes, exactly. Uh, the earliest the, – there are whales on, on early maps. Uh, and although the creature that swallowed Jonah is not clearly identified in the Bible, it's often identified with a whale. So we have an image of the creature that – uh, swallowed Jonah on very early medieval maps. Um, the earliest map that has an image of whaling is from 1413 by a cartographer named Mecia de Veladestes. Um, and on that map, this is an image of a whale near a ship, and it's clear that the, the people are trying to do something to the whale. And there's a long text that is a curious combination of of myth and and practical matters. So the first half of the text talks about this myth of uh, of sailors seeing what they think is an island and landing on it, and then finding out that it's actually a whale. So that's the first half of the text. The second half of the text uh, t- talks about practical uses for the skin of a whale. Uh, so a strange combination of, of myth and reality. Um, and moving further along that scale, uh, and, and one of the things that I uh, discuss right at the end of the book, 
is an early 17th century map uh, made in, in 1625 by Thomas Edge. And it's a map of Greenland. And around the edges of the maps, there, of the map, there's vignettes of the Arctic whale fishery that show all the stages of the process of killing and processing and catching them. And so there's an image of how to harpoon. I would suspect that's something you would probably want a more detailed manual before you execute. <laughs> yes. Yeah, more, more than just a few pictures before you, you got into that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but at that point, uh, and again, this is one map. This is not, I don't mean to suggest that all maps were uh, in lockstep with this one map. But uh, on this map, uh, certainly, the whale was no longer a monster. The whale was uh, an object of economic exploitation. Uh, so that it's a again, not, not all maps were portraying the same thing at the same time, but that's certainly an indicator of the fact that ideas about sea creatures were changing at that time, and their their monstrosity, uh, we might say, was decreasing. There are cases where people were clearly copying geographical details and artistic details from other maps. How rampant was copying back during this time or, or during the medieval time and, and these, when these maps were being developed? Well, in general, there was a, a lot of copying uh, from one cartographer to another. And uh, it has to be said that there was a different philosophy about copying in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Uh, as far as map making in particular, uh, it was a traditional art and science, as we discussed earlier. Uh, and new cartographers were trained in the workshops of established cartographers. And so copying was a part of the business. But in addition, more generally, there was not the same conception of intellectual property that we have today. Um, and so there was a lot of copying. And there's one particularly clear example of the copying of sea monsters which is the case of the flying turtle. Um, and in 1543, the Dutch cartographer Cornelis Anthonizoon published a new map of northern Europe uh, that rendered all previous maps of the region obsolete. And although no copies of that first edition survive, we do have two copies of, we have copies of two later editions from 1558. And both of those editions include a really remarkable sea monster, a flying turtle, which is a creature so incongruous that it seems to be a symbol of paradox or impossibility. It, right, because I was going to say flying turtles don't really become uh, an extant part of uh, world culture, I think, until Gamera, right? Right, uh, that's, later, that's later on. exactly so, right. That's exactly right. So <laughs> these are maps ahead of their time. Um, so we talked before about the fact that on a lot of these maps, uh, the sea creatures that we see come from earlier scientific works. Well, there's no earlier scientific work that describes a flying turtle, much less one that places the creature in northern Europe. And in fact, the source of the flying turtle uh, was that the turtle was the logo of the map's publisher. Uh, on the map, there's a, a cartouche that uh, that says this the map was printed at the sign of the turtle and there's four turtles sort of supporting this image and so I, I think the artist sort of exaggerated the the printer's logo into this flying turtle put it on the map as a sort of uh, a subtle, subtle advertisement for the printer and so this flying turtle which no one ever believed existed I don't think uh, and which was in fact just an exaggerated version of the printer's logo, was copied by other cartographers throughout the second half of the 16th <laughs> century. And so the, the career of the cartographic career of the flooding turtle shows very clearly that in some cases, Renaissance cartographers copied sea monsters very uncritically. Uh, they saw something they liked, they copied it onto their map without making any effort to determine whether it had any basic basis in in scientific text or in reality that's pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> well i i want to thank you for coming on the show and talking with us uh there is a question we try to ask all of our guests 
uh, which is what's your favorite monster? Uh, that's a, a fun a fun question. Um, and we don't lock you in. If you come back at another time for another book, you're always you know I change my mind all the time, so don't feel pressured <laughs> here, right? <laughs> Very good. Um, my my, the, my my current favorite then uh, on maps is uh, a, a sea monster on Gerard Mercator's map of Europe from 1572, and the the creature is certainly based on a whale because it's spouting. Uh, but instead of spouting from a, a hole on the top of his head, it's spouting from five elephant's trunks that stick up from its head. So it's a very extravagant creation. And the, the head, the rest of the head of the monster is that of a bird. And then the, the, the rest of the, the, the sort of, uh, below the neck is a fishy sort of serpentine uh, body. Uh, so it's a type of monster we spoke about earlier where the, the creator takes pieces from different creatures and assembles them into one. And it's just, it's so extravagant. It's so whimsical. Uh, it's a chimerical. It, it is. <laughs> and it's quite captivating and even enchanting. It's very cool. It's a good picture. Uh, I, I think I, I could probably find a copy of that and put it in our show notes. Yeah, great. So, And I'll put it so it's not reversed because I don't want people to know I copied it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Chet, for spending some time with Monster Talk. We really appreciate it. Blake, it's been my great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Monster Talk. Thank you for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today, you've been listening to an interview with Chet Van Duzer about his book, Sea Monsters on Medieval Maps. I'm Blake Smith, your host. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, but the opinions of this show are those of me and my guests and not necessarily those of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply